Welcome to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. I believe there's a rhythm and art in everything that we do. This is my journey about how I went from being a hip hop dancing engineer to a multifamily real estate investor. If you want to learn more about how you can start investing in real estate, stay tuned to learn from multifamily real estate investors and hear how they found their rhythm and created their own sound investments. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Koo, and this is the show where I interview multifamily real estate investors and discuss how they found their rhythm and created their own sound investments. Now, this week's layout is very similar to what happened a couple of weeks ago. Rodney Thompson and I just had too good of a conversation that we decided to just go with the flow instead of breaking it down into story and action items. Before you dive into the show, this is a reminder that this show is brought to you by Nightly Productions. 2020 was one heck of a year that saw many businesses double down on virtual content creation and even more businesses fall to the wayside, unfortunately. Now, if you already have a platform, a podcast, a YouTube channel, and you're ready to shift into 2021 to begin creating more content that breaks through the noise, be sure to check out Nightly Productions and find out a way that you can help content your content deliver. Now, enjoy the show. And I'm working on starting a new podcast called The Mindful Capitalist. Mindful and we're and Mindful Capitalist. Got it. And what it is is it's I'm going to I'm going to have guests on that have come to how how should I put it? guests that have understood or understand or have come to the reckoning of about how mindset plays a crucial role in success. Hmm. Because I used to, you know, I I would always hear about, you know, like positive attitude and things like that. And, and I was all for that because positive attitude makes a huge difference. Right. Right. But I, when it came to like, I, I listened to Hal Elrod, Hal Elrod's got the whole morning routine. Yep. Miracle morning. And one of the things that they talk about is meditation. And I was like, ah, whatever. Yeah, meditation, (laughs) no big deal. Right. But I kept hearing it over and over again. And I was listening to a podcast, well, Tim Ferriss's podcast. And Tim Ferriss had Dan Harris on there. And Dan Harris is a CNN reporter, commentator. And, and he was talking about, and well, and then a little bit of a backstory is that, and you can use this in your podcast. (laughs) Okay. Part of the, uh, part of the, you know, my, my coming up through being a Christian is that meditation, you know, it's funny because the, the, you know, if you read the Bible, the the Bible talks about meditation, but then when you talk about meditation in, in Christian circles, they're, they're like, oh, you know, meditation. No, you, you, you don't want to, you don't want to meditate because clearing, you know, emptying out your mind allows all of this bad stuff to come in. And that's not what meditation is at all. Mm-hmm. And when I listened to Dan Harris talk about meditation and he said, it's not about clearing your mind out. And he wasn't talking about in, in, in Christian terms, he was just talking about in general meditation. He says, it's not a clearing of the mind. He says, it's a, it's an arresting or a training of the mind to focus and concentrate on a particular thing. Because when you sit down, I mean, if you think about the last time you had a conversation with somebody and even right now, 
because I'm, I'm talking to you and your mind can absorb information faster than the way, than the amount of words that I'm saying. Hmm. And our natural tendency is to think about something else. You know, the, the, the trash needs to be taken out or, you know, I've got to do the dishes or I need to do the laundry or, oh, I got, can't forget about that appointment tomorrow. And all the while you're listening to me talk, right? And, and meditation is training the mind to concentrate or to come into laser focus onto what you are in the present. And it, it is a learned, I don't know if I would say craft or habit, but, it, but it's a learned response because if, you, if you're new to meditation, and even if you're not new to meditation, a lot of times if you sit down and you start to meditate, your mind goes into this revolt mode. And, and as you try and concentrate, like when you're first starting out in meditation, the, the one thing that they have you do is concentrate on the breath. And so you concentrate on the breath and then all of a sudden your mind, you know, I don't know if you've seen the movie up, mm, but right. the, there's a, there's a dog in there by the name of Doug of, I think it's Doug. Yeah. Doug. Yeah, Doug. And, and he, and he hollers squirrel, right. And he's just, he's off chasing the squirrel and your mind does that all the time. You, you will, you will be in the moment, one moment, and then all of a sudden you'll be thinking about something else. And even though you're present in the moment of whatever it is that you're and whether it's a meeting or whether it's a conversation with somebody, your mind all of a sudden will just run off somewhere else. And even though you're listening kind of halfway, you're also thinking about this other thing. And, and meditation trains your mind to stay focused on the moment. And it's an amazing thing. When you start working on that, it's going to be, you're going to run off the road so many times. And a lot of a lot of the people that you listen to that are, I guess, early meditation uh, instructors will say, what's the word that they use? It begin again, begin again. So you're, you do, you do your meditation. And if you run off the road, you stop and you begin again, begin again, begin again. And it really starts to come to the point where, you are more present in the moment when you're talking with whomever it is. And it's really a wonderful thing because it allows you to become more engaged with the person that you're talking with. Not that your mind is never going to wander because it will, but as soon as it does go to wander, you recognize that and you're able to bring your mind back to the present, to where you are in the conversation. And it really allows you to listen to the conversation better. So that's my discovery over the last, you know, when I, when I went to, when I came into this whole COVID thing, I had, I had a deadline of June of this year, because at the last part of last year, I took an, an early retirement incentive at work because they needed to trim budgets. And so I took that, opportunity. My wife and I talked about it and we said, our goal is to be full-time real estate. We have 14 months to get this goal realized. And I, I think we can do it. We already had, we already had a deal under our belts. We should be able to put two more deals under our belts. By the time I have to retire, 
And between that and a few other income streams that I have, we should be okay. And then Corona hit and just totally screwed up everything. So it caused us to, well, it caused me mostly to refocus. And where I started to refocus was on the, on the mindful part of everything, because I had already, I had already been up early in the morning. I had already been up at four o'clock in the morning because that was, that was when I could, you know, I, I started getting up at, at five so that I could underwrite deals before I had to go to work hmm. at my W2. Well, that wasn't quite enough time to get up at five, get a shower, get dressed, and then get to my desk before I had to go to leave to go to work at seven, to be to work at 7.30. So then I went back, rolled it back to 4.30. And then I said, well, that's not quite enough time. And I ended up rolling it back to four o'clock. So I get up at four o'clock and I would get up and I would underwrite deals. Well, when COVID hit and we started working at home, I did get a little bit lazy. I'm like, <laughs> well, you know, I don't have to drive to work and I have a little more latitude here and there. So I'll just get up at seven. And that, that went along for a while. And all of a sudden I realized it's like, holy crap. I, you know, I'm, I'm being, I'm, I'm a slacker getting up at seven, going to bed late. You know, it's just like, oh, you're at home. It's no big deal. Well, it is a big deal. So I, I refocused. I, I began again. And again. And I started getting up at four o'clock again. And, and this time I actually modified my morning routine. I got, instead of before I would get up at four, I would shower, I would go to my desk and I would underwrite deals and I would underwrite deals until I had to go to work. But now I got up at, at four o'clock in the morning, make coffee, sit down, read. I wasn't reading before I was listening to audio books and I was, I was good with that. But then listening to, and then I was talking with Logan Freeman. Mm -hmm. And Jerome Meyer and, and Jerome was a big audiobook guy. And Lil, Logan was like, nope, you got to read. You got to read. It makes a difference, makes all the difference in the world. You got to read. So he, you know, he got Jerome Meyer reading. And, and then I'm, I'm kind of in that circle. And so I'm like, okay, you know, it's not that I didn't like to read. It's mostly that I was a slow reader and it was, not necessarily a painful process for me, but it wasn't an enjoyable process. But I said, okay, I, I get it. If you read, the retention level is different when you, when you physically read the book because I never used to write in a book. You know, I, I'm, I was this kind of this hyper neat guy, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, <laughs> you can't write in a book. Yeah. So I, I got a pen out and I'm reading a book and I'm, I'm underlining stuff and I'm making notes in the margin and that kind of thing. And it, it does, it does make a difference. It does make a difference. And I've, I've gone through, you know, several books and I've put that on, on, on LinkedIn, you know, what I've read and, and asked questions from different people. And, and I've, you know, done meditation. I mean, I do meditation. So, I mean, I, I get up in the morning, make coffee, I read, meditate, now I don't do all of uh, Hal Elrod's morning routine, but Savers. the one thing that I the one thing that I found out is that at least for me when I when I did the whole Hal Elrod thing is is that I kind of felt like well I can't I can't do all of it therefore I'm not going to do any of it, and 
that's really the kind of the, that's the wrong attitude or mentality to take with it because I've listened to tons of podcasts and you hear different people talk about the whole L Hal Elrod thing. And, and they say that, well, what works for me is, and then they lay out whatever their schedule is, you know, whether it's like get up early in the morning or like, I've heard people say, well, what works for me is, you know, I get up at eight and, and I, and I, I read and I meditate and I exercise and I journal and, and I start work at 10. And so what I came to realize is it's okay. It, you know, it doesn't have to be this structured thing. It, you need to make it work for you. And when you make it work for you, it's okay. It, it's, it's like this liberating kind of thing where you you're comfortable with the routine. And if you, and if you later on, you decide, well, I want to add something to it. It's okay. It, there, there's no hard and fast rules. There's this general outline of, of what you should do, right? Uh, you know, what's worked for a lot of people. And so once I realized that things have become a lot better. And so now, you know, I get up in the morning, I make coffee, I read, I meditate. And I, a lot of times I'll visit with my wife and then I'll go to work and, and things are, the, the morning starts out great when I do that. Hmm. So anyway, I don't know yeah. when, when you started. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, we, I, we like, it's like <laughs> nine o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, no, I was I've just been like talking for 30 minutes. So no, you're good. I, I was just like thinking back of just like what my mornings have looked like and just like hearing about your morning and how much of an, how much of an impact, you know, and, and sort of like the journey that you took with your mornings and, and how like you went from like seven and you feel like a slacker. And then you started getting your way back up and just the mindset of like, even not, not being able to do everything and just like picking a little bit of things up. Like it's, like that's still okay and still finding like peace within it. Like it's, it, it really caused me to reflect and I guess in a way like not be present. Cause like I was thinking just like some of the ways that, you know, where, cause, cause like I used to wake up at 4am and then like I started working from home and it was, you know, a very similar situation where it's like, oh, okay, I could sleep in just a little bit, but it kind of derailed everything else and built a lot of anxiety, but yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing. That's uh I felt, I feel yeah. like that's just really powerful and just knowing your mindset, you know, now I know a little bit more about Rodney. I, I think that, you know, when you look at this whole pandemic thing, as far as a lot of people think that there was a lot of bad things that came out of this whole pandemic, mm-hmm. but I think that there, a lot of things are what you make of them. And my whole goal prior to the pandemic was to get three more deals done before I retired so that I would be in a situation where I would have enough income to replace what I was making at my W-2. That was my goal. And then the pandemic came along and it changed everything. And, you know, like I said before, it allowed me to refocus. And, and I use that word allowed purposefully because a lot of people I think could look at this as being a bad thing. And, and it, and, you know, don't get me wrong. It it was bad because, you know, a lot of people have lost their lives and things like that. And, and, and people's homes have been disrupted. I mean, it's caused a lot of issues. Don't get me, you know, so that, that I'm not discounting that, but what I'm saying is, is that 
as far as I could have, I could have taken a bad view of the whole thing and said, Oh my gosh, you know, now I'm not going to be able to achieve my goals. And what am I going to do? But instead I refocused and said, what, what can I do now that we can't go on tours of properties that the deal flow is dried up, that lenders have changed their parameters on how they'll lend money. Instead of focusing on those things, it's like, what, what can be done in the current circumstances? Well, now I find myself at home and I have this opportunity to in, increase my LinkedIn following going from, you know, basically 258 followers to now I'm only, I have almost 5,600 followers on LinkedIn. Wow. You know, going from basically no web presence to web presence going to when I, when I signed into LinkedIn, I had people that constantly tag me on their, on their posts because they want to include my network and people contacting me off of LinkedIn asking about deals that I'm working on. Those things didn't happen before that. And, you know, our relationship, you know, that, that, that you and I met, I, I think I, I would attribute that to the things that I've done over the last year that I knew I needed to do because I had those things on my radar, but they were things that were kind of more of a, a margin item. They were like on the back burner. Yeah, I need to, I need to get my LinkedIn profile looking better. I need to get my website looking better. I need to network better. I need to reach out to people better. And and at the same time, I, I knew I, that I needed to do all those things, but I was doing all of this, what I perceived as things that needed to be done. And so the pandemic comes along and it forces me to refocus, forces me to refocus on my LinkedIn profile and what I can do virtually to reach out to people and not being able to go to meetups, not being able to go to large gatherings like best ever conference and fire summit and all of these things that you would normally go to, to expand your network. It, it causes you to refocus and what can I do at the moment? And, and so in that regard, I think it was good. Did you do any deals during the, just like through last year? I mean, you, you mentioned that deal flow is pretty, pretty dry. Um, I didn't, I didn't, I, I, hmm. And, and this is where, this is where the refocus came because deal flow, you know, when, when the, when the whole pandemic hit, I think a lot of people thought that we were moving into another 2008 because the real estate market's been very bullish hmm. for a historic amount of time. I mean, it's, it's incredible how long it's been bullish and there was constant talk prior to the pandemic about a correction. And there was all of these people that were guessing about when the correction was going to occur. Right. Right. And, and so when the pandemic hit, a lot of them thought, Oh, this is the moment We're now we're moving into the correction. And so the, the buyers thought they were going to get these fantastic deals. The sellers thought they were going to get taken to the cleaners. The lenders thought that they were going to be at risk. So what happened was, is the, 
the the buyers they were looking for great deals which didn't happen the lenders i mean the uh the sellers pulled their properties off market because they didn't want to take a bath on on their property and the lenders pulled back on lending and changed regulations or changed requirements and and required reserves on on their you know tip most Fre- Freddie and Fannie were were requiring between I'm, 12 and 18 months reserves oh. <laughs> of principal and interest. Yeah. So that alone killed a lot of deals because you were having to raise a whole year of debt service in advance of closing the deal. So, you know, deals were pulled offline. The, the lenders changed their, their rules. And I just looked at it and I said, all right, well, we're, I'm not even going to underwrite deals because they don't work with, with the reserves that are the, the reserve requirements. They don't work. So I just quit underwriting deals and mm-hmm. I started concentrating all the things that we talked about before. And, and I didn't underwrite a deal from probably the first part of March, 2020 until the end of 2020. And what? Yep. <laughs> you didn't underwrite any deals until nope. then? Wow. Nope. Didn't underwrite any deals. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious now because uh, there's there's a narrative going on that, you know, something is going to happen where a lot of people, a lot of these mom and pop sellers are going to, to be in a world of hurt, especially with the eviction moratorium continuing to be extended. And these mom and pop owners aren't going to be able to handle their payments anymore. So uh, have you considered like going into a you know, smaller, smaller multifamily assets? Or are you looking strictly for like above a hundred units? I think that, I think that you're correct in, in that, in, in the states that are maintaining eviction moratoriums, that they're, that those things are going to happen. Okay. There's a lot of states that the eviction moratoriums are being lifted. Iowa is one of them. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know the entire list, but I know that a lot of them have been lifted. Okay. But I don't know, honestly, if the states where eviction moratoriums are going to continue, if I would be interested in, in even looking at properties in that state. Interesting. And, you know, not, not to turn the conversation political, but typically uh, a red state will have more landlord friendly regulations. Now, a lot of people look at that. I, I had a lady that, you know, Morgan or Logan Freeman posted a posted, Morgan, Morgan I know, Freeman. I do that all the time. <laughs> I am so bad about that. <clears throat> Logan Freeman posted a, uh, an article talking about how Kansas city has had a steady 4% rent increase. Mm. And there was a lady from a housing advocacy group that posted on there talking about how bad landlords were. And, for me, that that's an opportunity to talk to somebody and have a good conversation, not a heated conversation, but a good conversation about expectations and how multifamily properties are run. Because I think a lot of people that don't that aren't involved in multifamily don't understand that it's a business. They think that landlords, aka owners, have these properties and and there are these slum lords that all they're interested in is turning a dollar and that's not entirely true because 
yes, it is a business. And yes, we have an obligation to our investors to make the business profitable. But we also work with our tenants to make sure that if they're running, if they run into problems and they're a good tenant, we'll work with them to set some sort of a payment plan. You know, we're not, we're not going to kick them out as soon as they're 10 days late on rent. And I think that this individual that I talked to, we had a good conversation offline, you know, through direct messaging about how, because she came to me and she says, she says, well, why don't you lower the rents for these people? And I said, okay, well, let's look at that. If we lower the rents and we're not able to pay our bills and make our mortgage, then we lose the property and ultimately they could lose their home. So it, it's not this cut and dry thing where we own the property free and clear and we're able to cut rent at our at our whim. And property or prices, consumer pricing grows year by year. It's just, a, you know, their inflation grows, consumer mm-hmm. pricing grows and consumer pricing is also included in, in your rent. And she said, well, why don't you talk to the banks and get them to, you know, give you some sort of forbearance, which they did during COVID, but this was prior to COVID, this conversation was. And I said, okay, well, if you, if you're asking the banks to not, to allow us to not make a payment, which means that they, their bank isn't profitable, which then they have to explain to their investors why their bank is not profitable. Do you see how it just, it all goes down the line and where's, where does the buck stop? Somewhere along the line, you're asking somebody to lose money and, and it's not feasible. Yeah. And it's not feasible. And then something I do want to point out as well is, is that I feel like there's a a large emphasis on the, just because it's cheaper and there's a lower price point means that we're taking care of the tenants, you know, cause you know, that was my original mindset too, is, you know, like all these multifamily investors are slumlords. They just own, own all these apartment buildings. But in reality, sometimes, you know, when, when we go and fix up an apartment building that you're improving the community and in increasing rents in, in helping those other other people within those to have the nicer amenities and taking out those people that could be potentially like creating problems or, or, you know, just being bad tenants. And so, you know, I I just love the point in saying that it's not just the price point that really just like makes it better for the tenant. Like there's a lot of other things. You know, I, as a, as an owner, I have an obligation to have a property that is, well-maintained and is a nice environment for someone to come home to and call home. And, and that obligation should be reciprocated from the tenant by paying, you know, a fair price for, for that nice amenities laden type uh, piece of property. So it's, you know, I, I, I've seen, properties in, in a town just north of me where they are slumlords. I mean, they, they own these houses outright. They refuse to make any kind of improvements to the property. It's, it's marginally livable because they rent it to students at the university up there. And, and I don't, I don't think that that's right either. I think that, I think that there are responsibilities on both sides, but 
everybody has to understand that when you buy a property and you improve the property and you make the property better because, you know, the, the pool's been out of commission for four years and you spend eighty dollars to $100,000 to fix the pool and you put in a nice playground so that the kids can enjoy going out and, and playing in a playground and you improve the dog park and you make the grounds beautiful by planting flowers that have to be changed out semi-annually, basically. That, that, that stuff, it, it doesn't, it has to be, it, it's still, what's probably the, the good way to define that? I mean, you know, as, as an owner, having to maintain that, and I, and I shouldn't say having to maintain that because that's not right either. Because um, it's, it sounds almost like an obligation, but like, I mean, wanting- I do. So, so I, it is an obligation. I mean, I have an it, obligation to the tenants that live there to, to give them a nice place to live. Right. Right. And, it's, it is an obligation, then, but it's like, you want to do the obligation yeah. versus like and having then, it as and an then expectation. They, they have an, they have a right to, you know, they have a, they have an obligation to pay their rent. Right. So it's a, it's a, you scratch my back. I'll scratch your back. Right. <laughs> I, I I think I heard another word that was supposed to, that it, it sounded like you were like you scratch my ass I scratch your ass. <laughs> um, anyways, sorry about that. You, you um, have to edit that out. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll edit that. I'll, I'll edit that out. Don't worry about that. <laughs> but you know, if there's it's a relationship between the the owners and tenants, and and oh and. What was the, I know Jake and Gina uses this term because they don't like calling them tenants, but they call them residents. Residents. Um, yep. Residents, because they're not just tenants. Like these are, these are people's homes that we are dealing with. Yeah, I think that's good. And I, and I, I would agree with that having, you know, whether you call them a tenants or residents, I, I think that when you put onsite management in place, that that onsite management has a responsibility to serve those tenants, those residents, mm-hmm. and those guys, when they do that, make the people that live there feel like that's home. And that's really what you want to do is you want them to feel like that's home, that when they come home to that, their neighbor is their neighbor, you know, as a friend of theirs. There's there's a company that they approached me that they do like community events mm-hmm. and they'll come to your property and they will hold like resident picnics and different activities to oh, help fun. the residents meet each other. Yeah. So that you don't just show up and walk from your car to your apartment and that's all that's where you you hang out and you don't know who's living next to you. And and these guys have really helped make the the place feel like a community and made the residents feel like this is this is home. This is where they're supposed to be. That's good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now I'm curious and I want to dive into just your approach to, to this idea of community. Cause you know, in your background, you like, you started with a bunch of single family rentals. Now with those single family rentals, were you managing those yourself or were, did you have a property management company? I had a property manager. Okay. Now, you know, were, was there, was there ever a moment or an experience that you've had with certain residents about that made you realize that like, wow, I am taking care of, of people's families or I am taking care of like a community? Not really. 
And, mm. and I would probably say that my whole attitude toward residents, I don't know if I would say I had this epiphany and everything has changed, mm. but I think that when you run a business and, and this is where, this is, this is where the distinguishing difference comes, right? Is that I would had, I had those single family properties and had a property manager and I just looked at it as a source of income mm. and not that larger multifamily properties aren't a source of income because they are, but great source but of I, income. <laughs> but I, but I think that that where the differentiation comes from is you look at these single family residents as you, you rent them out. There's there's somebody that lives there. The property manager takes care of them, and and deposits the rent in your account every month, and that's your extent of your of your involvement, right? Mm-hmm. When you when you get into a larger multifamily and you look at it more of a business because that's really what you're buying is when you buy a multifamily building or set of buildings you're buying a business you know you you look at the T12 you look at the rent roll you do you underwrite and analyze how this business is being run and what its potential is and and then you formulate a business plan to take that business and move it forward to make it more profitable and more valuable for the investors and with the intent of disposing of it or selling it in five to six years as a more profitable business. And, and anybody who's had a business before understands that customers are what drive that business. And the old adage about customers always right is not always true, but but you should also run the business with the in, with in mind and intent that you're there to serve the customer and your employee. Okay, a lot of a lot of businesses miss that that important fact there that businesses exist because of the employee for the customer. Hmm. And a lot of people say, well, the business is for the customer. No, the the business well or the business exists because of the customer. No, the business exists because of your employees for the customer. The customer. And and there's a there's a big there's a big difference there on how that whole thing uh, plays out because if you if you take care of your employees, then your employees will take care of your customers. And in this case, your employees take care of your tenants. And so you're buying a business. So that that's the the shift in mentality between the the single family and the multifamily. And so when you made that shift, you know, you, you know, we talked about just economies of scale uh, and just having it as a better business model was, and then being able to scale up more and, and just have more, you know, safe, secure assets and uh, at least risk adverse. Now, was there anything also emotional to when you made that transition? So like, you know, I understand the the perspective and approach is, is different in, in the, te- in the residents that you're dealing with and, and how you're operating it as a business. But was there, um, I guess that, you know, I'm trying to come up with this super nice way of answer, like asking like why, why you went from single family to multifamily in, in these larger assets, but I, I'll just ask it in a very simple way. What made you go from single family to multifamily? There were, there, there were a couple of reasons. I, I think most everybody who's been involved in real estate in one capacity or another has listened to bigger pockets. Hmm. 
And Bigger Pockets is centered around a lot of single family duplex kind of investors. And 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 I was right there with them and and the whole Burr method that David Green talks about. Mm-hmm. And but at the same time, I did see where there was this kind of this theoretical limitation of what you could do, terminal velocity, if you will, to single family residents. And I did like Brandon Turner said, if you buy, <clears throat> I think he was, if, if you if you buy a single family residence every year for, I think he was saying 10 years, and then on the 10th year, you refinance the first one and you do a cash out refi, then you take that money out tax-free. And then every year after that, you, you so in other words, on the 10th year, you refinance the first one on the 11th year, you refinance the second, second, one. second one. And on the forth. 12th year, you refinance the third one kind of thing. Right. Right. And he says, once you get to the 10th year, then when you get to the 20th year, then you can refinance the, what would be your first property again. Right. So hmm. I, I said, well, that's amazing. And, but then I've got to wait 10 years for this to, this to happen. So, Along the way, somewhere, somewhere, I listened to a podcast talking about multifamily, and I don't know if it was a guest that they had on on Bigger Pockets or in my in my uh, cruising the the podcast directory. I ran across something that was talking about multifamily, mm-hmm. and they talked about forced appreciation, and I'm like, wow, that's crazy forced yeah. appreciation because you know a single family house is valued based on comps. In the neighborhood, and you can only sway those so much. But forced appreciation, if I decrease expenses, increase income, or do a combination of both of them, I can increase the value of the of the commercial property. And I, I as soon as I heard that, I'm like, holy smokes, that's that's amazing. Hmm. And so I started really delving into multifamily and 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 I said, well, that's that's where I need to be. And so that's that's that was my transition from single family to multifamily. So you made this transition, and then how did you, you know, you know, mindset wise, you made you made this transition. Thanks for listening to the multifamily artist podcast. If you got any value out of this episode, I'd greatly appreciate if you head over to iTunes, leave a rating and review the show, which will help more people receive that same value. If you're looking to connect and talk more about multifamily real estate, you can reach me at inrhythmmultifamily.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.